Of all the Buddha's teachings, uh, those about non-self or not-self is probably the most elusive. You know, we can easily understand, at least conceptually and to a large extent experientially, the truth of impermanence. And we've all tasted the truth of suffering in our lives, or the unsatisfying quality of impermanent conditions. But non-self runs counter to uh, even our common sense. You know, we just, our whole lives revolve around this idea of a self, an I. And yet, this understanding of selflessness is uh, essential, is an essential uh, part of every Buddhist tradition. You know, in the Theravada tradition from the Pali texts, when the Buddha is giving advice to his son, who had become a monk, Rahula, one of the classic teachings that he gave his son, he said, see everything in the light of perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. That's with regard to every arising phenomena. From the Tibetan teachings, you know, one of the very greatest masters of the last century was Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. And he wrote, the idea of an enduring self has kept you wandering helplessly in realms of samsara for countless past lifetimes. It is the very thing that now prevents you from liberating yourself and others from conditioned existence. If you could simply let go of that one thought of I, you would find it easy to be free and to free others too. There's one teaching from uh, an 11th century Korean Zen master, Shunul, uh, that I've really appreciated a lot over all these years and the way he framed our practice. He framed it in the context of sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So he's pointing to the possibility that we can each have moments of sudden awakening to really quite transforming truths and realizations. And that sudden awakening, that insight, that understanding, then needs to be cultivated in our lives. So tonight what I'd like to do, rather than kind of a usual well-structured Dharma talk, I'd like to just share with you some of the experiences I've had uh, during the last few years of my own retreats. You know, those kind of insights or understandings that had that flavor of kind of a sudden awakening to something, you know, that I didn't understand before. And they all revolve around in some way freeing ourselves from this notion of self, of I. And sometimes they came just as intuitive reflections. And sometimes they came through the words of a book. Or sometimes passages from the suttas, from the discourses that I may have read countless times before, 
And then just reading it once more on retreat, the words kind of jump out, understand them in a new way. So this, this evening's talk is going to be a collage of different, different experiences. The first one is, in a way, is perhaps the simplest to understand and uh, it's kind of a, just a commonplace reflection, but it, it struck me deeply. How for each one of us, we are the stars of our own life stories. You know, we have become the center of our own universe. And that's how we live our lives. But of course, for 7.28, according to Google, <laughs> billion people on the world, in the world, they don't even know I exist. <laughs> and that came home even more personally uh, when I was thinking about a friend who I don't see that often, but we're, we're close friends, uh, who's going through you know, quite a difficult time. And I realized that as she's dealing with her own life story, I probably don't play any role at all in it. You know, and so there was just that sense of disappearing in a certain way from thinking my own story was so important or so central. It kind of dissolved it in a way. And I think this perspective uh, can loosen our attachment and our identification with our own particular dramas. It's not to say that we don't engage with them and they're not relatively important for us. But they are not the center of the universe. And most of the universe is completely unaware of it. So it's just a little something to keep in mind. Okay, to get to a little more profound dharma. <laughs> there was a famous uh, Burmese monk uh, Lady Sayadaw, and that's L-E-D-I, not L-A-D-Y, <laughs> Lady Sayadaw, uh, who was both a, a great practitioner and also a very great scholar of Buddhism. And I was reading some of his teachings, and I came across this passage where he outlined one example, or an example of wrong view in our lives basic wrong view. And it was basically about everything we believe. And so this was the list of what he considered wrong view. The feeling that I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm excited, I'm angry, I'm afraid, I'm interested, I'm planning, I'm deciding, I'm choosing. It was, just, it was a whole long list. It's how we live our lives. It was all wrong view. Why? Because of the I. I am this. I am that. And so it really just struck me uh, that we need to take a look at that. This is, this is a teaching that gets to the very heart of how we're living and whether we're living with a right or a wise understanding or living in the realm of wrong view. 
So I kind of came up with this framework. It was kind of a short little uh, teaching. I called it From Am to Is. So instead of I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm eating, I'm walking, I'm planning, I'm judging, there is anger, there is love, there is walking, there is eating, there is tasting. Just taking, making that shift in the way we're both conceptualizing and experiencing the different activities of our lives. And so it would be very interesting for you, just as you're going through the day, to keep an eye out for the many times in the course of a day there's that feeling of, I am, I'm doing something. Right? I'm walking or I'm eating or I'm thinking. Just watch out for when that sense of I am is strong and it happens frequently through the day. And get a sense of what that feels like, that sense of I am. And I think you'll see that there's a certain uh, contraction of our being. It's like we collapse everything into this sense, I am whatever. You know, I'm, I'm doing this, or I'm thinking this, or I'm feeling this. And then in that moment, just reframe it as there is. There is eating, there is walking, there is happiness, there is sadness. And just in that moment of shifting the framework, notice what that feels like. And I think you'll experience, as you go from am to is, a certain release, a certain spaciousness, a certain openness. So instead of being contracted in the I am, there's just the openness of awareness of what is. So if you remember from the first morning's instructions, when I suggested using the phrase, there is a body, as a way of kind of settling in to the sitting, it's very interesting to do that in the walking as well. When you're walking, and you might go from that sense of I'm walking, but even if you don't have that strong sense, just to start uh, bringing to mind the phrase, there is a body, as you're walking. And something quite remarkable happens. So you're walking at any speed. This can be at a more normal speed or a slower speed. There is a body. So we're creating a framework you know, for our awareness of the whole body. There is a body. And what's so interesting is that as we do that, the sense of the body disappears. There's actually no body. And, and what we begin to experience is just sensations in space. You know, from opening that framework and getting away from the I am sense, there is a body. And you employ that in the walking. You remember that there is a body body disappears, and we begin to get a sense of the selflessness of it all. What's being known 
in that moment is simply different sensations arising and passing in space, in openness, in emptiness. So it gives a taste, it gives a real connection to what selflessness, the experience of selflessness is. If you think that this is uh, not so important, I want to just read a couple of lines from the Buddha. My backup. (laughs) (laughs) By, By rightly understanding I am, one makes an end of suffering. That's a pretty clear statement. By rightly understanding the sense, I am, one makes an end of suffering. He said, the eradication of I am is the attainment of Nibbana here and now. So, this is worth experimenting with. (laughs) It can give us a real taste of freedom in that sudden awakening. And of course, it needs be, there needs to be a gradual cultivation of that experience and that realization. But it can point to something very profound. And I like this framework of sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, because so often we practice with this idea, oh, well, I'll practice for the next 30 years and maybe, you know, I'll realize something. But actually the sudden awakening, you know, to these moments of transforming understanding can happen in any moment. It can happen now, if we know how to direct the mind, to direct the attention. So, I'd really encourage you to uh, just experiment and explore this particular framework, from am to is. Noticing when the I am is strong during the day, and in those very moments, oh, there is whatever is happening. And begin to see that and feel that and experience it for yourselves. So we create a strong sense of separation, a sense of self, uh, very predominantly in the attachment we have to our views and opinions about things. And with some degree of awareness, you might have noticed that we have a lot of opinions about things we know nothing about. (laughs) That does not stop us from having opinions about it. So just one example of this, which was very striking to me and was very freeing for me. This goes back years, many years, when I was first teaching at Naropa in 1975. So one of the great Tibetan masters, Dujam Rinpoche, had come to visit, and he was really one of the great masters. And there was a poster uh, advertising a talk he was giving. And the poster said, Dujam Rinpoche, you know, the time and place of the talk, and then incarnation of Sariputra. Now Sariputra was the chief disciple of the Buddha. And in the Theravada tradition, when you're fully enlightened, you don't come back. And I had spent the last, you know, I don't know how many years immersed in this tradition and understanding. 
So when I saw this, it's like my mind went on tilt because <laughs> here's this great master. This was not just some ordinary, this is a great enlightened master, incarnation of Saraputra. That's impossible. <laughs> and out of that moment of tilt, I realized that I really had no idea. You know, all, all I knew was that the Theravada tradition said this, and the Tibetan tradition said this, but it was completely outside my realm of experience to assess, you know, which was true, which was right, which was wrong. And it was a, such a freeing moment to realize that I did not have to have an opinion about that which I didn't know. I recommend it. <laughs> just, so we just stay open. We're not drawing conclusions. Well, you know, maybe this is true, maybe this is true, maybe they're both true in some mysterious way. You know, many people have asked about the relationship of metta and vipassana. And one way of understanding the relationship is, you know, that metta is really operating on the relative level of being, of self, of oneself to another. And vipassana is really trying to understand the more ultimate level of selflessness and emptiness. And that is one way of understanding the relationship. But there's also another way. There's a way that metta and the feeling of metta actually has a liberating function, can take us out of the sense of self. So I just want to share with you something that was profoundly transforming for me. You know, in situations of conflict, when, when there's some big conflict going on with another person, that conflict is often fed and sustained by our attachment to being right, or to feeling right. You know, and that, that can fuel you know, our emotions for a long time. So some time ago, I had been involved in a situation like that with very problematic situation, a lot of strong feelings on both sides. And so I was on retreat, and this had been going on for quite a while. And there's a lot of suffering involved, and a lot of feeling of separation and judgment and all of that. So I was on retreat, and of course, as you I'm sure can relate to, my mind was just going over this again and again and again. And I became the best lawyer in the world for my case. <laughs> you know, over and over again, all the arguments for why I was right. Because of course I was right. And this went on, you know, this was the retreat, but you know, when something very powerful is happening in our lives, the mind can really churn it out. And then I happened to come across and read quite a remarkable book, uh, which is called Tattoos on the Heart. Maybe some of you have heard it. It's written by a man named Gregory Boyle, who is a Jesuit priest, 
living in LA, working and living right in the midst of all the gangs down there and working with the kids and some you know, teenagers and young adults who are killing each other. You know, this a violent situation. And the conditions in which the kids grow up, which he outlines in the book, you can see where that violence comes from because the conditions of their lives have been so terrible. And the stance that he holds in the midst of all this violence with regard to all the kids involved is love no matter what. No matter what they've done, and sometimes it's horrendous, they're killing each other, you know, and killing innocent bystanders in the process, and love no matter what. And the way he writes, he writes very beautifully and very simply, the book transmits that feeling. You know, you really get a sense of what that could mean. And so one of the, and, and a lot of the stories, there's a lot of uh, heartwarming humor in the book as well. It's, he talks about how some of the kids, many of them, actually are transformed by his love no matter what. You know, and it's such a, it's such a absolute stance that he has managed to embody. So very inspiring. And one of the lines in the book, uh, when they're describing his work and talking about you know the the kids and the people, said, "You can't disappoint us enough. No matter what you do, you know you're not going to disappoint us because it's love, no matter what." So I was reading this book in the midst of my own lawyering. And so I just started using a little mantra, which was a, which was a precursor to love no matter what. And that little mantra that I started using as I was thinking about all this conflict and about how you know, right I was and how wrong the other person was and just that whole thing. I just started repeating to myself, inspired by this book and by, you know, his work and his being, I just started repeating, endlessly forgiving. Endlessly forgiving. It doesn't matter what happened. It doesn't matter the situation. Endlessly forgiving. And it was so interesting whenever my mind would start churning again about the situation, all the reasons, and you know, all the justification, and the being right, it doesn't matter. Endlessly forgiving. And that morphed into love, no matter what. doesn't matter. And it's the no matter what part that really is the liberating function, because there's no back door. It doesn't matter. And what I experienced in that, it was like coming out of the prison of self and self-justification into the space of love no matter what. And it was just the dissolving of that contraction of self and I, fueled by I'm right. So it was really, profoundly transforming to 
see the possibility of that space and that we don't have to stay imprisoned, you know, in this self-justification in whatever situation we're in. It's love no matter what. That, that's a vastly superior way of being than being right. You know, which is, is with attachment to that and the contraction of that. So it's an example, and it was for me, it was, it was like a new level of understanding that and a new level of seeing how that feeling of love no matter what, which is really metta, that's what it is, dissolves the boundaries of self. So it's not just on the relative level of this being to that being. It opens us up, it opens us up to a space where we realize that love and emptiness of self are the same thing. Love and emptiness are really the same. So that's where our practice is leading, whether we're doing Vipassana or we're doing Metta. Uh, and I think it's helpful just to, you know, explore that realm, explore that possibility. Okay. 7.2 billion people don't know I exist. From am to is, love no matter what. All of these are ways of opening up to this understanding of selflessness. Next one that really had a very interesting effect on my practice had to do with a new application of the understanding, the teaching about the five aggregates. Now those of you who are familiar with the Buddhist teachings will be familiar with it. Those of you who are new to the teachings may not uh, be familiar with this terminology. But the five aggregates are the Buddha's way of analyzing the entirety of our experience, the entirety of this mind-body process of everything we experience. The Buddha uh, analyzed it in terms of five different aggregates or uh, elements of experience. And they are the physical sensations, the physical world, the material world, the body. The second aggregate is feeling tone, which we've discussed, you know, pleasant and unpleasant, neutral, how we taste experience. The third aggregate is perception, which is that faculty of recognition. So we look at something and we see a tree, we recognize it as a tree, or a house, or a car, or a person. That quality of recognition, of naming, the whole world of concepts, is perception. And I'm going to talk a little more about that. The fourth aggregate is mental formations. It's all of the mental activity beside feeling, tone, and perception, which were singled out because they're particularly important. So everything, anger, happiness, sadness, compassion, love, concentration, mindfulness, delusion, all of that is in this aggregate of mental formations. Uh, 
And the fifth aggregate is consciousness, the knowing faculty. Now for years, I read about this. This is on almost every page of the suttas, of the discourses. The Buddha talked about this a lot. Because when we understand that our whole experience is simply the dance of these aggregates, and we see the impermanent nature of each of those aggregates, that is the doorway to realizing that there's no self behind them. Everything we think of as self or as I is really just a play of the aggregates. Okay, so I had read this endless times, heard endless talks about it, usually quite bored in listening to them, because for a long time it just sounded very technical and philosophical and I didn't really get it. But over the years of practice and reading and beginning to apply, okay, can I look at this really as an instruction rather than as a description? Can I begin to look at my experience in this way? Begin to take on a lot more meaning as a doorway to understanding the selfless nature of it all. Now for those of you who are, as I say, relatively new to the teachings and the practice and are not familiar with this, it would be worth, if you have any interest, in doing a little study after the retreat just to learn more about it because it's a very essential framework for understanding. And it's something I don't usually do, but you could read a few chapters in my last book, <laughs> which describe, goes into a description of the aggregates, you know, in some detail, but hopefully in quite an accessible way. So it could be a way of further exploring. Okay, all of this is just uh, the precursor to what happened on the retreat. So there's one description the Buddha gave of the aggregates. And it's, it's quite a famous passage. He said, the body, or the material elements, but the body is like a lump of foam. Feeling, feeling tones, are like bubbles in a stream. Perceptions are like a mirage. Mental formations are like a plantain tree, like a banana tree. Th those trees have no core. There's no pith, right? You just, you can peel it all away and there's nothing at the center. So all formations in the mind are like a plantain tree. And consciousness is like a magic show. So this is a passage, again, that I read many times. You know, the body's like a lump of foam and feelings like bubbles on a stream. But on this one retreat, again, <laughs> this is something I recommend in reading the Buddhist teachings, it's so easy to read them as a description instead of as an instruction. So when we, we read it as a description, we might, oh yeah, that's nice, you know, it's a poetic description. But that doesn't really have much transformative value. So on this particular retreat, I started taking it as an instruction. Oh, the body is a lump of foam. So when I was sitting and feeling all the different sensations of the body, it's like I let that image 
kind of settle into the way I was experiencing the body as a lump of foam. And it is like that. It's just, it's just different sensations. There's no solidity. When, when we really drop into the actuality of what we're experiencing, of what we call the body, it's really just different sensations here and there. You know, appearing and disappearing. And so the image helps us see that. You know, if we, if we actually employ that image, something very remarkable happened. Just by using that image in this experiential way. Are you familiar in your practice with the experience of being with this experience in order for it to become something else? It's like we're with this in order for the pain to decrease. Or we're with the breath in order to become more calm. Or we're with we're leaning into the process, even if it's just leaning into the next moment. Right? There's, there's that tendency to be leaning into the unfolding aspect of the process. As if it's going to unfold finally into something or other that we think is desirable. Well, when I use that, that image, the lump of foam, the body is a lump of foam, it cut that leaning into the next moment because realized the body is a lump of foam in this moment. It's going to be a lump of foam in the next moment. <laughs> it will always be a lump of foam. And so there's nothing to become. Do you get a sense of... It was like dropping back completely just here in the lump of foamness. And that was, this is significant because one of the aspects, you know, of the cause of suffering, when the Buddha talked about craving as being the cause of suffering, it's not only craving for sense pleasures, he talked about the craving for becoming, right? That, that wanting the next moment or leaning into the unfolding process. So when we cut that craving, oh, the body is a lump of foam, it will always be a lump of foam, there's nothing to want, there's nothing to do, there's nothing to have, we're just with that. That's a freeing moment, that's a moment of sudden awakening, you know, to a, to a moment of non-craving. So we can employ the image, feeling tone, as bubbles on a stream. Again, using the lump of foam, the, the body as that, we see that the feeling tone of each of those sensations that make up this lump of foam, you know, each one has a particular feeling tone to it. It's either pleasant or it's unpleasant. And we see they are like bubbles on a stream. They're there for a moment and they're gone. They're there for a moment and they're gone. And the more attentive we are, to the moment, we begin to see that, and so become much less reactive to these feeling tones. You know, and so instead of pleasant, oh, I want more, or unpleasant, push it away, we say, no, it's just, it's just bubbles on a stream, arising and passing in each moment. 
perception as a mirage. We're living in the world of our perceptions, and it's very easy to, to become aware of this, particularly in the domain of seeing. You know, for some reason, in retreats, we don't emphasize so much being mindful of seeing, but it actually is one of the most profound and freeing aspects. So I want to give a little emphasis to it now. For many, if not most people, you know, for, for people with uh, intact eyes, working eyes, um, seeing is probably the predominant sense field of our lives. We are living in and moving through the world of what's being seen. And in the seeing, perception plays a very predominant role. We are recognizing what we see and naming what we see and then having reactions to what we see. So something that's come up in a few of the groups I've done which highlights the importance of understanding this. Uh, some of you, probably just a few, but some of you may have had the experience of the judging mind. <laughs> well, I had this, probably to the same extreme, you have all had it. But, you know, being on retreat, and particularly like at IMS, I would go into the dining room, and my mind would have a judgment about almost every person there. <laughs> you know, I didn't like the way they walked, or the way they moved, or what they were wearing, or some comment, maybe I did like it. You know, how much food they took, <laughs> you know, how quickly they were moving, all of it. Judging, judging, judging. It was so ridiculous. You know, and I was aware that it was ridiculous, and yet the mind kept doing it. So then I, I just started to investigate, well, what's, what's behind all this judging? So instead of going all psychological on it, and you know, digging back into my childhood, <laughs> I realized that all of that judgment was born from seeing, unmindfully. You know, my mind was going out through the eye door, landing on all of these beings, and then having judgments about each one of them. So I started going into the dining room. All I would do is note seeing. Seeing, 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 seeing. Bringing mindfulness to that sense door contact. 99.9% .9 of the judgments stopped. Because what was feeding the judgment was not being mindful of seeing. So this is why bringing awareness or attention to perception, and it's not only people in the dining room, this is our whole world. You know, if we're not mindful that we're seeing, then our mind creates a whole world of perceptions that we're living in. And yet the perception is like a mirage. It's a mind-created world that we're living in. So, this is something you could play with, and I would suggest you really uh, spend some time as you move through the day or night, and just take some time where, where you, you're making 
seeing the object of your meditation. Practice being mindful of seeing. And then I, there was a, just a, a tiny little step further, which you might also explore. I started changing the note from seeing to perceiving. And there's just an interesting shift. And it's, the shift is very hard to explain, but I would encourage you just to do that and to see for yourself. By noting perceiving, somehow it strengthened the understanding that what was being perceived or the way of perceiving was very conditioned, it was mirage-like. And so just as a way of understanding this conceptually, you know, we're seeing and perceiving and we think that there's really a reality out there that we're perceiving and we know what it is. But somebody with, or some being, with a differently constructed eye, an insect, for example, or a bird, or you know, some animal that has an eye constructed in a different way, will perceive a completely different reality. Which one is real? And then you multiply that by countless beings with countless sense door structures. And everything that's perceived through the sense doors will be different depending on how that sense door is constructed. Where is the, where is the reality? Perception is like a mirage. So it's very interesting. It kind of it frees us from living, living in the sphere that things are so solid, and that we understand the reality of it all. Everything becomes much more open and spacious and fluid. And it doesn't mean that we abandon the conventional, consensual reality you know, that we live in, because that would make life very difficult. But we don't have to give it some ultimate truth level. You know, and it frees us. The body is a lump of foam. Feeling tones are like bubbles in a stream. Perception is like a mirage. Formations. This if you did nothing else but see this one, you would leave here 95% happier. Mental formations, which is everything going on in our minds. You know, all our stories and all our emotions and all our thoughts and all our planning and all our judging. It's like a plantain tree. Each one of those states, each one of those experiences has no core, there's no pith to it, there's no substance to it. They're all arising out of momentary conditions, the conditions change, the experience changes, they're just like cloud formations. You know, conditions come together in a certain way, clouds appear, conditions change, they disappear. If we could see, if we could experience all of our inner mental world, emotional world, as a plantain tree. And we can do this in a moment. 
you know, this, this is not a far-off realization. It's just, that's why <laughs> these, these metaphors taken as instructions are very powerful. This is not just a description, this is a way to look. It's a freeing way to look at our experience. And in a moment, and it may just be for a moment, and it may just be for a glimpse, but we see, oh yeah, this, this anger or this excitement or this whatever it is, there's no substance to it, there's no, there's no pith. It's tremendously freeing to understand our experience in that way. So again, it's moments of sudden awakening that can happen in any moment. Consciousness as a magic show. I mean, this whole, this whole big thing. So just one example of how we can begin to get a taste of that. A little kind of a magical display. So I was on retreat one time at the Forest Refuge and having lunch. And for some reason, my mind just got interested in exploring taste consciousness. And because I was eating and, you know, enjoying the tastes of the food. Now, in the Buddhist teaching, taste consciousness arises out of four conditions. There's a tongue, there's saliva, there's some food or something on the tongue, and there's attention. If all those conditions are there, taste consciousness will arise. So I knew that, you know, from my study. So I just started playing. You know, it's, it's like a thought experiment. And there's just a little sidebar. Sometimes thought experiments can be very powerful. And I had just read a biography of Einstein his discovery, they were all thought experiments. He was, he was not an experimental physicist, he was a theoretical physicist. You know, so his great revelations came through the power of his immensely creative thought process. You know. So this is not something to underestimate. So I started having a little thought experiment with taste. So I'm sitting there eating and tasting and tasting. And then I, um, I just imagined, would taste consciousness arise if there was no tongue? And it became clear that it wouldn't. Or take any one of those conditions away. Taste consciousness would not be there. And what that revealed just in that moment of a precise thought experiment, it really showed the conditioned nature of consciousness. That consciousness is not some reality, solid reality that we can call self. It's arising out of conditions. Take one condition away, it's not there. And we can do that with each of our sense doors. We can do it with seeing. You know, we need an eye, working eye, something coming in front of it, light, attention. Seeing consciousness arises. Take any one of the conditions away, that consciousness doesn't arise. And so we get these moments of actually seeing the impermanent, magical display-like quality of consciousness itself. There's nothing solid there you know, to call self, to call I.
so when we're not mindful, you know, of the aggregates, that all of our experience is just this dance. It's just this dance of the aggregates, physical sensations and feeling tone and perceptions and all the mental formations and consciousness. When we're not mindful of that, we get identified, you know, in each moment with, with the body or with our feelings or with the emotions. And in that moment of identification, the sense of self is strengthened. We get imprisoned by it. <laughs> so there's a teaching by Kalu Rinpoche, another great Tibetan teacher. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. So we're living in that world of the mirage of perception. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So do you see the potential for freedom in this? When we let go of the imprisonment of self, the imprisonment of being identified with momentary arisings, the contraction of that. When we go from am to is. As we experience that, and again, it can be just even for moments at a time, we see that we are nothing. There's no one there behind experience to whom it's happening. There is a reality, which is just the dance of all these elements. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Okay, so the last, the last little possibility for sudden awakening that I'll talk about this evening is a shortcut to Nibbana. Okay, so, and again, this was a teaching that is in the suttas a lot. I read it countless times and never applied it. And then on one retreat, I read it again and said, oh, why don't I see for myself if this is true? And in applying it as an instruction, all of us, oh, there's something here. So this is a very short teaching. It says, in seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When the mind doesn't cling, it is not agitated. When it is not agitated, it personally attains Nibbana. Okay, so again, I had taken it just as a description of things. But in this one retreat, I said, oh, why don't you check it out? See, see if that really you know, is meaningful in experience. So, it's possible. At those times when you are directly experiencing the flow of changes, you know, it could be just in the experience of changing sensations in a step, or the changing sensations of the breath, or more open awareness, things arising and passing. Whenever you're in that space of really seeing the flow of phenomena, at that time, in seeing impermanence, check back in the mind to see whether there's clinging or not. Very interesting. And what I saw, and I think you will as well, that actually in moments of seeing impermanence, 
the mind is not clinging. Because if it were clinging, it wouldn't be seeing the flow. So we can get a direct experience and taste of the mind of no clinging. Because we're experiencing it in that moment. So check it out. You don't really see for yourself. When the mind is seeing impermanence, it doesn't cling. So we, we see if that's true. When it doesn't cling, it's not agitated. Check that out. You know. So when you're in this flow and you're seeing, looking at the mind and seeing that it's not clinging, notice whether it's agitated or not. And I think you'll find that when the mind is not clinging, it is not agitated. So by looking directly, we begin to experience and taste the non-agitated mind. We're in that experience of non-agitation, and we're recognizing it, we're seeing it. And right in that space, we can get a sense, an intuitive sense, yes, it's out of that stillness, out of that non-agitation, that the possibility of freedom of Nibbana can arise. This, this, this kind of a visceral taste of it in the non-agitation. So again, this, these are a few very simple short steps to enlightenment. Seeing impermanence, mind not clinging, mind not clinging, non-agitated, not agitated, Nibbana. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> there's all of this. But how to bring this realization, or how to integrate this understanding or, the, or these sudden awakenings, you know, to the selflessness, the emptiness of self of the process in all these ways, you know, where our story is not the center of the universe anymore, you know, where we go from am to is, where we really experience that openness of love no matter what, when we see all the aggregates, which is the totality of our experience, really employing the metaphors the Buddha used for us to see the emptiness of it all, the insubstantiality of it all, to really practice this impermanence, non-clinging, not agitated. So how do we, how do we integrate all of this just in the conventional reality of our lives. You know, because in conventional reality, there is a self, and there is an I, and that's how we operate, and we're relating one to another. So I just wanted to read, this is a, te a teaching uh, from a Tibetan master, Kenshin Gyalchen. He said, we are not denying or ignoring the label of I, we are just questioning whether it exists independently. The Buddha himself used conventional language when he said things like, when I was in such and such a place, I did such and such things. This is my Dharma teaching. So the label of I can be used conventionally. So we live in that world, and we use this language conventionally. But the self to which it refers does not exist in the way we perceive it. That's why we are said to be confused. Hard as we try, we cannot stabilize or establish as true 
that which does not exist. No matter how long we meditate, we will never see a self. We cherish ourselves so much that surely we would have seen it by now. (laughs) Someone who will sacrifice anything to protect the self would have found it if it existed. But no one has seen a self-existent self. Grasping and cherishing that which does not exist is at the center of our suffering. So this is why it's so essential to this whole path of freedom. This is the essence of it. So just to sum all this up, I'd just like to <laughs> quote this, this is a, a wonderful teaching, again from a, another Tibetan teacher. It said, Is the self real? No, it's, it's not that you're not real. We all think we're real, and that's not wrong. But you think you're really real. <laughs> you exaggerate it. <laughs> so that's what we, that's the realization we have to come to. Yes, we're real, and you know, we live our lives from that place. But can we understand that we're not really real, (laughs) that we exaggerate it? So let's sit for just a couple of moments. (laughs) 